right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. We're going to get to uh, another hour-plus conversation we had with Brad Faxon here shortly. Since he is the putting guru, though, before we do get started, uh, you heard me talk on this weekend's recap pod about Mark Leishman and Madeline Sagstrom winning on tour with Odyssey putters. Well, the number one putter in golf has even more news for you. So for those that struggle with your alignment with putting, This is going to be an absolute godsend. They've announced their new lineup of triple track putters, which features a concept you've seen on the Callaway golf balls, the three distinct alignment uh, aids, the lines that help you line up your putts. I kind of, I'm about 80% of the time I'm a Truvis guy, but when I, I need a different look, I go to the triple track. And I will say, if you have fallen even remotely in love or interested in the triple track, you got to see what they've done with the triple track lines on the uh, Odyssey putter. So they line up perfectly. The ball has the triple track and the putter has the exact same triple track. The test data shows 88% of golfers are better aligned with triple track technology. Neil uses the triple track. He's the most religious user of it uh, amongst all of us, and he's making putts all over my ass on a consistent basis. Uh, The triple track putters are available in the most popular Odyssey shapes. So my favorite, the Odyssey 10. Uh, I need to get one of these in the arsenal. So when I do go back to that triple track that I've got uh, the Odyssey 10 putter to go with it. Classic two ball has it, even the double wide blade, among others. So for more on the Odyssey triple track, visit odysseygolf.com. That's odysseygolf.com. Without further delay, here is Brad Faxon. Well, I know we talked a lot of putting last episode. I am going to want to talk more of that. I know we talked a lot of Rory. Uh, I think that was pretty well covered. Other than noting, right after we had you know this discussion about the practice session that we viewed last time, he went out and won a tournament. So we were up. We knew we we were sniffing around the right trail around that time. Well, I said to somebody today at the at the demo day that one of the secrets to being a, get, a great coach is coaching great players. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, I mean Rory McIlroy good. is, you know, a, a once-in-a-lifetime player, so he, he can make a, any teacher look pretty good. But his approach is so much more unusual today than what everybody else is doing. He's had one instructor his entire life, uh, a caddy that's a best friend. They don't go to tournaments, the instructors don't. Yeah. For generally, they don't. And uh, I got lucky with the timing of when he asked me to come watch him. And I, listen, I'm proud of it because he his numbers have gotten way better on the greens in the last couple of years. He's played unbelievably well. He's a tournament away from being number one in the world, isn't he? Uh, yeah. One victory. It's about and to happen, and yeah. he's number one. I, I can see that happening soon. And going back to a place like Torrey Pines where he played well last year. Um, and I think his putting rankings would have been lower last year because he shot, I, I believe, 64 on the north course, and they don't use shot link on the mm-hmm. north course. And, he, you know, he made seven or eight birdies that day. So that would You're have been in a, deep in this stats. Come on, I'm, I'm <laughs> trying to pull well, I was So I listened back to our episode from October. Uh, I was playing an evening nine yesterday, and I wanted to listen back so it was fresh. So I didn't just make sure we didn't talk about the same things over and over again. But one of the things we talked about was uh, one of the practice drills of going and hitting putts with something other than putter. And I was actually struggling with my putting a little bit, and I went and hit like 10 putts with a 60-degree. And immediately I was like, wow, why does that feel better? Because I think I got too far in my head on putting stroke. And that drill immediately brought me right back to like, no, 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 just like be an athlete and 
let your instincts take over. Right. It's a, it's a phenomenon, really. And I'm going to get a reputation for, oh, Faxon will just tell you to be athletic. He'll just tell you to free it up. He'll just tell you to uh, forget about everything, which is probably a good thing to do for anybody. I, I've yet to have a top player come to me and say, I need to think about more. I need to take longer. Yeah. I need to make sure I'm more perfect. You know, nobody's saying that, okay? And, and what I'm trying to get players to understand and to feel and to realize is when you do that, when you take your sandwich or lob wedge, it, all of what's correct goes out the window. And what I mean by that is uh, a lot of players are, are used to using a mirror or chalk lines or something to help them square everything up and, and look correct. That they're, they're watching video. Uh, they're trying to make their posture perfect. I see a lot of players when they set up, they're, they're looking at their, you know, that maybe their toe stance line, their their legs, their hips, their shoulders, see that everything's square before they hit a putt. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is taking all your senses away from what you're supposed to be doing and thinking about where you want the ball to go. And if you can't feel the difference in what you just said about taking out a lob wedge and just, you know, trying to hit it down there, all of a sudden it doesn't matter how you hold it, where you aim, you know, a lot of, you're just trying to belly the ball. And, and some people sold the club, some people raise it up. Uh, it's a, it's a, and a leading edge that's usually got – it's not straight, right? Most of them are some kind of uh, leading edge that has some kind of curve on it. So you're not lined up perfectly, and all of a sudden people go, oh, that feels so good. But you've got to know what that feels like before you could ever feel it like that in competition. Yeah, and that's something – uh, in, in recent weeks I've been playing more golf, and I've had some putting rounds where I have been as close to blacking out as possible. I mean, like 10, 12-footers are practically gimmies for me. And then I will go play a different course the next day, and I can't get the ball to leave the putter face in the in a straight line. Like it does, it just comes off left, it comes off right. I just can't channel that, and I have no idea what the, the difference is. I, I can't. That's what I'm trying to channel, and I wanted to kind of pick your brain on when things aren't going great. Say in a round with your putting, I'm trying so hard to channel blacking out. I yes. don't even think about it. Don't do anything. I try to go back to like, hey, just feel like you swing the heel on it, and or get, I get more vertical over it and try to feel like I, the heel comes off the off the ground a little bit, a little bit more like Steve Stricker, but it never seems to be something that I can like flip the switch in the middle of a round. Is there anything you can help well, with there? No, it's a, it's a it's a common problem really, and I, I go back to the, first of all, we're human beings, we're not perfect robots and machines. Where every day is going to feel the same. How you get out of bed is is different every day, but. Most of the people that have played this game, and you would agree with this, have had a, a shot, a full swing shot or a putt that you knew you were going to make or knew you were going to hit straight before you swung that club, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Everybody. And that's a great feeling. And the, whether you want to call that a black belt state like you did or a flow state uh, like we're hearing more about, I think the research on the brain is, is virtually we're just tapping into it. Like we're 2 or 3% of the way there. And, and how do we get somebody to be where you want to be every single time they play? And there's a great challenge to it. But... I was really good for a long time when I played at not blaming something mechanical uh, in my stroke when I missed or when I was, and I kept saying to myself, keep doing your routine over and over the same way, keep doing your process and, and wait till these putts go in. And now when you're missing, that's a hard thing to do. But at the elite level, I, I don't think you really have a choice. And my favorite line that I've ever heard, I have a lot of favorite lines from a lot of people, but from Bob Rotella, is you gain control from giving up control. You gain control from giving up control. And I'll tell you a more applicable way that you could think about that. Um, I used to try to play 
a lot of my practice on top players. Uh, Greg Norman a lot of times. Tom Kite was took me under his wing early on, Peter Jacobson. So I was going to the first tee in a practice round with Tom Kite at the TPC at the Woodlands. And the first hole there was a, a dogleg right par five. It was kind of narrow. And I, I think it was a new course, probably 1984, 85. And Bob Rotella was out there with us. It was kind of the first round he had ever followed me around. Kite had been one of the first couple pros, Dennis Watson Kite. And as Kite's walking on the first tee, he turns around and he goes, wow, you could miss this fairway if you tried. And Rotella said, no, you couldn't miss it if you didn't try. Hmm. So that's kind of like a tangent to that. You gain control by giving up control. So I always like those little sayings because everybody kind of knows what it means. It gets them a little frustrated sometimes because they don't buy into it right away. But when you're playing your best, you're absent of thought. Yeah. I think there's a difference between hitting good putts and not making them and just not feeling like you're putting it well, I think is kind of we no talked about doubt. that some last time. Is, yeah, hey, you got to live with. Hey, I hit a great putt there, and whatever golf happened, and it didn't go in. Right. I think it is just so hard to channel. You know, in that middle of that round when it's not going great, how, what makes you a good putt? And I think it's as simple as like I, I was playing by myself last night, absolutely no stakes, and I had like a, a, an actual birdie putt, and I hit it so poorly. I just it was just never had a chance, and I tried it again. And I, as soon as I looked up at the hole, I saw the putt totally differently. I just, I wasn't thinking about this is for birdie. Yep. You, as a twenty footer, it moves a little to the left. I, I just saw it totally differently, and my mind was more freed up. And I don't, I don't remember if I made it or not. But I just remember being like, "Whoa, that's a really different feeling." And and so it's a common phrase. It's like first team, all, second ball, all American. Yeah, people sure. will say when they hit another shot. But what is that? I mean, you understand mental golf better than any of any of the of than me or anyone listening. I would imagine. What is that? Well, I want you to go back and listen to what you just said to me because early on, right here, when you said you don't even remember whether you hit the putt in the hole or not, but you were in the right state. And I think the best players in the world, when they're especially when they're putting their best, they'll hit putts, and when they don't go in, they can react in a positive way, have their acceptance be. Uh, patting themselves on the back rather than beating themselves up. And I know uh, personally when I've been thinking about my stroke and, and trying to find some magic in there, there, there's always a balance, right? Every player's got some technique issues. Every player's got some you know, mental issues, what's going on upstairs. And you've got to blend those. And sometimes it's you add a technical thought to clear up the mind. Uh, and, and that'll work sometimes, and it really is. It's so individual yeah. on the player. Well, do you do you know what? Let's say you're when you're putting your best in your day. Do you know what you were thinking? Like, did you have a thought, a swing thought with the putter? This is the first time I've ever seen you look confused. I, I, <laughs> I definitely have, and I've de- they they've all been different. But I was, um, I, and I, I've told this to Rory especially, and he likes this feel. I, I always felt like if I had my right shoulder, <clears throat> my right elbow, right right hand work is kind of a piston and a chain down to the head of the putter. That thing that always felt good to me. I'm very right handed and very right sided, so that that was a feel that that I could keep and and, and work well, but. You know, one of the things that uh, the more instruction I've done, uh, the things that I like to see, I like to see how good guys are at imitating other players. Can you know, could you imitate some of those silly strokes you mentioned, Stricker? You know, his hands are high, his heels off the ground, uh, his grip pressure's tense. Can you hit a putt and make it? Um, I, I had Rory do that a few times with, with old putter, old wooden shafted putter, you know, a straight blade, um, and he got crouched down there and, and looked like 
freaking Harry Varden or something, and, and he made them. You know, he was really good at that, and I've had some guys get, let me see how wristy you can get and make a putt. Let me see you do Lauren Roberts where you feel like the blades face it. And do you still have that awareness of face and path together and still can make those putts? I, those things help you, uh, and it's kind of like, learn a little skill on how to juggle that eye-hand coordination stuff. Yeah, and I think that's, that's kind of similar to picking up a wedge and doing something like that. Who were, and I, I know you've mentioned some of them, but who were some of the guys that really commanded a lot of your respect when it came to putting? Well, it's funny. I, um, I just had a conversation with Ray Floyd a couple days ago. Ray Floyd uh, designed the course Old Palm, where I live in the development um, and he was the architect there and a guy that was one of the most intimidating players to play with. Uh, and, and I remember specifically at the Westchester tournament was the Buick Classic, or maybe even the Manny Haney before that, but we were on the 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th tee. And I had the honor. I was a slow player as a young, young guy. And on the front of this tee box, it was, it was up pretty high. There were a bunch of people walking down below and Floyd was to the tee to the right. Uh, on the right side of the tee. He couldn't see these people. And I stepped away twice, twice from a shot. Uh, can I say the F word on your you show? say whatever you he, like. Um, he, I, I stepped away for the second time, and you know, it was a tough tee shot for me. He goes, will you play fucking golf? And <laughs> I've never swung so fast in my life. <laughs> I hit the worst shot, and I, I went over, and I put my head down. I'm like, oh, my God, Ray, Floyd just told me to hit the fucking... And, and he was a guy that commanded respect. And, and I said to him, and the, we, you know, we had an, I had an hour at his house a few days ago, and we were talking about a lot of things, and particularly the short game, because he was a wizard around the greens, and his whole thought, I asked him, I said, did you have anything you ever thought about when you putted? He goes, no, I never thought anything. All I wanted to do was to be comfortable. And if you can think about Ray Floyd standing over a putt, he had a 38-inch long putter, which was very long. It was a zebra, and he has very short arms and a long torso. So I actually stood up next to him. He, sh he showed me this. It was remarkable. My hands, my fingertips were four or five inches closer to the ground than his. Hmm. So he needed a longer putter. It was really heavy. He had great uh, flow, but bent elbows, arms far apart. And he, he, you could see his feet always tapping, always m moving until he got comfortable. And he said, I never thought about anything when I putted. I'm like, never? I mean, four-time major champion. Right. And... We played one round at the Masters uh, years ago. This was in the 90s, mid-90s. He's still a great player. Uh, and he hit a, back then, a, a, a high-lofted sand wedge on the 14th hole, which was that you know intimidating green. The whole location was front right. And he, a lot of times you'd have it hit off the false front and come back. And it would get into the, the ryegrass fringe, which was tightly mown. And most people would be running this thing up. But then once it got to the top, it would run away. He took out his 60 degree or whatever, 58 degree. He had a J.P. Wilson sandwich, and he hit this ball back in the stance on an upslope, banged it into the front of the green, and as it crested the hill, it had a little six or seven feet to go, way before it was even close to going in. He was walking it in, left arm up, and it went in, and it, it was it went in so soft the flag stick was in, but it, it's almost like the ball never hit the flag. I'm like, how did you just do that? And he says, I practice that stuff all the time. I always had different shots. I was imagining. And I'm like, here's Ray Floyd. And what, what was, was remarkable about that, Chris, is, is players like Floyd, uh, Seve, Hubert Green, they were unique in their styles uh, and 
commanded a lot of respect. And we would say to those guys, you have great touch, you have great feel, you have great hands. And now I see, you know, here we are looking at the PGA show with all the merchandise. How many grips do you see that are thin anymore? Hmm. Almost none. And every teacher's now, let's take the hands out of the swing. Let's use big muscles. I'm like, big muscles, come on. Let's use little muscles. Let's use your hands and fingers. And one of the little practice exercises that I like to do is to, you know, if, if, if you're having trouble with chipping, if, if I stood to the side of you and rolled the ball to you so you would hit the moving ball, I bet you'd start chipping pretty good with that hitting and moving mm-hmm. ball. And I, it would even work with a putter, too. And you wouldn't be trying to use big muscles to do that. Uh-uh. Yeah. I'm trying to get Ray Floyd for a podcast. They haven't replied to any of the emails here. Really? I might have to get you to, to, to set me up there. Everyone's got a Ray Floyd story. He's like so interesting. And, yeah. you know, he's. I always think people with a twang, you know, whether the accent's from Scotland, which would be the brogue, obviously, or North Carolina where he grew up, I mean, he's so interesting to listen to. And, he, you know, he's played with everybody. And he, he kept in touch because both his sons played, you know, with the modern-day game you should get him on yeah i'm working on it he just seems like such a like the story you just told there he was like an authoritative figure in golf i mean he was he was an alpha he pushed people around a little bit yeah he he did and and uh he i i was i had to talk to him about him something about an old palm about the golf course design there we were um having an argument about something with a couple people. So I said, I, w- I want to meet you face to face because he's not really a texter. You know, mm-hmm. he's just about 80 years old, not quite. But um, he's, I said to him, I said, you know, your wife, Maria, used to tell you you had that look in your eye. And, and he got famous for that. And I'll tell you what, when I, I said to him, I, I looked in his eye, I had to say something. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> It's really intimidating. So to play against him in a, yeah. a singles Ryder Cup match, I wouldn't have wanted to be be that guy. Yeah. What uh, you know, you said you you start talking about like wooden shafted putters and stuff. There, how much has technology in putting changed? We hit, we talk a lot about the the golf ball change, the the drivers getting bigger, and how far guys hit it. But has technology in putting numbed the skill of it at all? In your opinion, there's a little bit of evidence that you can see from the shot link data that's showing that players are improving slightly uh, across the board on on from putting distance certain distance whether it's three feet six feet ten feet and and would you say that's this the skill of the player or would you say the agronomy is better uh, green surfaces are smoother soft spikes are taking out a, a lot of the marks that were in the greens you can fix yeah and, and that's i don't know i i think greens are definitely better i mean you can see the grasses and what's really better is bermuda grass now where we we used to dread going to bermuda grass greens now it's your favorite I love putting bermuda now don't you which i would have never said many i mean i came from no. the midwest but now i've been down in florida for two years like i I, I wonder if I'm only good on Bermuda now. Well, you, you used to be worried about grain, uh, particularly, uh, you know, the common Bermuda grasses that you saw before. Yeah. And now these new strains of Tift Eagle, Tilt Dwarf, you. Celebration, you're like, this looks like a carpet. There doesn't look like anything irregular here. The colors are all similar. Uh, it's, it's definitely helping players, but... Uh, I, it, it's a combination. You know, Scotty Cameron, when I first started seeing him in the mid-90s, he had a patent on the, the speed of his cameras. It was so high speed. And he could slow down everything about the stroke that you could see, the collision of the, the putter with the ball, how it left the putter head, and how the, uh, the loft affected the ball. Uh, then you could obviously see the entire stroke in the body. But I think that 
if you looked at the evolution of the lofts on putters back then on those uh, putters, the Calamity Jane putter that Bobby Jones used would have had a lot more loft. Uh, the sweet spot w- was really hard to find. Mm-hmm. Uh, the grasses were higher, so you needed more loft. Hands were four. It was a wristy stroke, you know, mm-hmm. a very wristy stroke. So now I think you'll, you'll see. I mean, even from like your, like when you came out on tour to now on tour, do you see putting being, despite all the other outside factors, the technology that's actually yeah. in putters, do you see a big difference? Yes, and, and I, what I see now is with the mallet-style putters that have, the, the MOIs change so much that you can hit the ball off-center a little bit, and it, it never twists. It's easier to swing. They're almost self-swinging. I think the drawback to those, and they're heavy, is there's not as much feedback as you might have got from a traditional blade putter, whether it was an 8802 or a, what I use, uh, is the Faxday, the, the Laguna model. But I would say we're going to see, as the younger players continue to use putters that Adam Scott or Justin Thomas or Rory McIlroy use that are more mallet uh don't twist as much. You'll see more and more, more, more face balanced. I had trouble. Like I resisted switching to a mallet. Now, now I feel like they keep getting bigger and bigger for me. <laughs> just, I just feel I like it, it, it. It's a hurdle to get over initially, and then it's like, oh yeah, why wouldn't? Why, almost why wouldn't you have something yeah, like that? And, and I, I, I see in the, in the, the juniors. You know, at Fox we do the U.S. Junior Boys. We see the U.S. Junior Girls. We saw the young amateur players. There's more and more mallets now than I've ever seen. Yeah. If you guys are listening to this podcast, that means that it is here. Taurus Sauce Season 5 is here. It is live on our YouTube channel. This season is brought to you by Original Penguin. It takes uh, us through our road trip through the Carolinas. Episode 1 is at Secession Golf Club uh, in Beaufort, South Carolina. It is an enjoyable 24-25 minute watch. The live premiere was on Tuesdays. If you want to catch the live premieres, we're going to do it every week uh, at 8 p.m. on Tuesday nights. A lot more people can join on Tuesday nights. Uh, we had a great turnout. On a couple thousand people, I guess, uh, were watching the live the live stream, the live platform. To tell you a bit about Original Penguin, listen, they've got styles for everyone. So if you want something wild, like you're going to see Neil and Tron wearing in this the course of this season, Original Penguin has that. If you prefer a more conservative, more traditional look, they have that too. You're going to see that with many, many different shades of blue for your boy, uh, it's it, the fit of the clothes, specifically the polos and pants are extra. I don't, I don't know how to describe it. The, the, I wear these clothes uh, both in this series and when I'm just casually laying around the house. It's a great fit. It's one of the more comfortable fits. Uh, it stands for originality and celebrating good times both on and off the course. You can wear almost all their stuff on the golf course and off. I actually started wearing the hoodie a little bit on the course, which uh, definitely gets a, a couple looks, a couple curious looks. but. Um, the, we demonstrated this both wearing it on and off the course this entire season. You're going to see it. So uh, always remember to be an original. Check out OriginalPenguin.com. We're going to have contests with him throughout the course of this entire season. They've been a great partner to, uh, to, work, to work with. And if you do win the contest for the week, you get to choose your favorite outfit from the episode. And you are gonna, we're going to send you one. We're going to send you the full Original Penguin outfit. So again, head to our YouTube channel. Check that out. And be sure to check out OriginalPenguin.com. Let's get, Brad, uh, let's get back to Brad Faxon. What, you mentioned talking about video there on, and I never knew that about a patent on a camera. Yeah, patent on camera speed. God, what a pioneer that guy is, I guess I should say. What did you learn about seeing your putting stroke on camera? I don't know if it's for the first time or how far into your career before you really started studying your putting on camera, but what did you learn about it? Well, did I ever show you the putting chart 
on, on that I'm, yellow pad piece of paper? I don't think so. Um, I, I'll show it to you while we're talking because it's remarkable. And I had uh, two giant influences on my putting career. And one of them was a, a conversation with Ben Crenshaw. And one of them was uh, the first time I went into Scotty Cameron's when I saw my stroke went a little bit straight back and then I kind of went over the top and cut across it. Now, I had done that most of my life. And I was doing this talk for last year's PGA show. And I'm going to show this to you now. I wish I could post this I can somehow post it with, so, so with the episode that if people that can see yeah. it. So, so here on the left column are the, the year I started 1984, and that's just the years I played. And the first stat they kept in putting was putts per round. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you hit 10 greens, you'd have normally less putts per round because mm-hmm. you chip it in there closer than yep. your iron shots would go. So here's my rankings the first five years in putts per round. And they didn't have the putts per green and regulation stat that later came out. So I was 69th, 47th, 34th, 12th, so a good year in 87. 88 and 89, I was 66 and 112. So you'd say I was a good putter, maybe a little bit better than I was, but not extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And I met Crenshaw here. Now, he had, he had won his master's in uh, 85. And is that correct? He did. 85 yep, 85. And 94. Yep, 85. So I talked to Crenshaw here in Orlando at the, the Disney tournament at the Palm Course. It was late on a Tuesday afternoon, and a buddy of mine named Gary Smith, who used to work uh, as an instructor for David Ledbetter, wanted to video Crenshaw's stroke. And he, he asked me if I would ask Ben. And I was nervous. You know, here I am, a fifth year player. I knew Crenshaw, Masters champion, but not well enough. Mm-hmm. But it was a quiet afternoon, and he was gracious, as you would expect. And um, I said, hey, Ben, Brad Faxon, my friend Gary wants to video your stroke. And this is back then VHS tape, you know, it's a yeah. big camera. And Crenshaw said, sure. And he goes, he actually admitted to us that I'm not playing that well, not putting that well. Crenshaw said that to me. I'm like, whoa, I would never say that. And I go, well, what's wrong? He goes, I'm stroking at it, not through it, which is hard to decipher. What does that mean? It's sort of esoteric. And I'm like, hmm. So he goes, well, I said, what do you do when you feel like that? He goes, well, I try to make my back swing longer and my follow through a little bit shorter. And I allow or I try to let my knees, my head, my knees move when I putt. I'm like, what? <laughs> and yeah, Gary Smith almost dropped the putter. Yeah. And I go, you allow your head. And yeah, he says, it's a little mini swing, the putting stroke. He says, there's weight shift and stuff. And it, it keeps me softer when I putt. I, I don't have as much tension. And he, you know, he, he had that putting stroke when he, when he took it back. It was free-flowing, and the putter kind of had a little loop, and it got up in the air, and he dropped it on the ball, used some gravity. So, I mean, just to continue with the stats. So after I met Crenshaw, I went from 112th to 8th, 22nd, 14th, 4th, uh, 34th. And then we add this other stat because this was – I was always told, oh, you, you don't have a lot of putts per round because you miss all the greens because I didn't hit it great. <laughs> and then the putts per green in regulation was supposed to be a more um, accurate measurement of how you putted, so only the greens you hit in regulation. So, you know, here I was, 120th, 17th, 26th, 111th, 12th, very inconsistent until I meet Crenshaw. I went 13th, 58th, 2nd, 38th. And then Scotty came to Titleist in 95, and we started working on putters and strokes. And it was really the first time, like I said, that I'd seen my stroke in this high speed. And uh, so this gets pretty good. 95, I went from 34th to 6th, 1st, 1st, 3rd, 2nd, 1st, 4th, 11th, 18th, 6th, 5th, 9th. And so those last three years, 04, 05, and 06, I was 43, 44, 45 years old. So that old adage that you only can putt well when you're young um, my, my streak here from, I call it a streak, 95 to whatever those years when I was never outside the top 20 yeah. and won the title three times, I was 24, 
34, 35, 36, 37. So right. you can get better as you get older. Hmm. So I learned a lot about my stroke from Scotty. And then what I liked the most is I won the title on the other stat that putts per green regulation. So we didn't have the strokes gain putting un- say, until yeah. my final three years. <laughs> and, you know, I was winding down. Um, I had tore my ACL in 03. So I played injured for a while, but ninth, fifth, is that, well, that's a second, yeah. ninth, second, and fifth. And even though I didn't feel like I putted my best for the last six or seven years I played on the tour, I think the only two guys that were in front of me were Luke Donald and Tiger Woods. <laughs> so was I born a great putter? That's what pisses me off when yeah. people say that. I go, no. I mean, I practice. That discounts or discredits everything you've ever done as a kid. That, yeah, that, and when I asked the, the, who the you know, people that commanded the most of your respect for putting, I was expecting you to say Crenshaw. I knew there was a Crenshaw tie, but I don't think I knew that that whole story to that. Would strokes gained have, you know, that didn't come into play until it looks like 2004. Three, then. I think, was yeah. the first year they started using all Would that data. have helped you? Like, would that have, uh, would, you know, there wasn't the putting stats just, I guess, did you have any other data back then that not really. was better than putting average because no. there's some flaws in that stat yeah there sure are and on all of them and, and you could you could say that um there maybe there's flaws in in strokes gained but what it never tells you and what statistics never tell you is where your head is before you hit your shot yeah right so yep. i mean if you if you made up a criteria of strokes gained attitude uh how would that affect or, or change the way you putted or you looked when you did it. And I'm trying to find a picture as I scroll through here. My favorite one of Ben Crenshaw, which I'll find in a minute, but um, his motion was so good. Uh, I think I looked at stats or I thought about putting when I putted great. If I didn't putt well, I tried to throw those feelings out the mm-hmm. window. What you you kind of looking at your stats there as you, and as you approach the end of your PGA tour career, what was it, what was it like to, essentially end your competitive PGA Tour career. How did you know it was time? Was that a difficult thing to process? What was that time period like? So I I remember being, I was in the, uh, a gym in my basement in my house in Rhode Island, and I was 42 years old. I had just played a great year in 02, 03, and um, I had this kind of meathead trainer you know I was paying 45 bucks an hour and he'd come to my gym and we'd do crazy stuff and not crazy stuff but just you know working on whatever we were lifting weights and doing our stuff and then this particular Monday of Thanksgiving I think I was 11th or 13th in the whatever the world ranking was then and I did this stupid exercise I can't believe I did it I've never seen anybody do it since but I I was using a six-pound medicine ball. I had finished the workout. I was in really good shape. I was 42. And he said to me, hey, stand up, squeeze the ball between your ankles, and I want you to jump and throw it to me with your feet. I go, why would I do that? And he goes, this is a, a lower ab exercise. And I'm like, what? Like, so show me how. So he shows me how to do this guy's pretty strong guy. Mm-hmm. looks like Popeye. And um, I did it. A couple times I, I got it going. I'm like, yeah, that's definitely low abs. And yeah. I'm like, so I did the fifth or sixth one. And he said, just do 10. So I, I did um, put it between my ankles, jump, but I didn't squeeze hard enough. So the ball stayed on the ground, but I jumped. So my right foot landed on top of the ball and I just went. Uh, and I felt my knee just turn like a can opener. It was no. just going in slow motion around. I'm like, oh my God, I just tore my ACL. And I'm, you know, I. It didn't hurt as much as I thought it would hurt, but it hurt. Yeah. And I'm grabbing my knee. He goes, come on, get up. You go to finish. I'm like, what? <laughs> 
and he, I've never seen him since that day. Yeah. Uh, and, and it was funny. I was, I, I used to be a squash player and I went up to watch the U S open squash at Harvard and I saw the entire baseball team doing that exercise. I'm like, stop. <laughs> stop. <laughs> but that, the long answer to that question about when did I see my career wind down? I didn't know then that that would be, you know, I, I was playing pretty good. I mm-hmm. had great corporate deals going. I was making some good money and I panicked because I tore my ACL. I was in the mass. I was in every tournament and I didn't know what to do. This was November. I knew from ACLs from players that played other sports, you were out for the year. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, am I going to miss an entire year? And I asked all these doctors, called Dr. Anders in Alabama, the top doctor in Boston at uh, Mass General. And finally, this one guy named George uh, Bert Zarens, who worked for Anders years ago, said, you know, you're a golfer. He didn't know I was a professional golfer. He goes, you play golf, you don't need an ACL. I'm like, what? He goes, just to rehab your knee a little bit and just, you know, if you, if you don't need to play other sports, you'll be fine without an ACL. So that gave me like a little sort of breath like okay I don't have to play here for let's take three or four months off and see if I can play without my ACL and I I, I got to play in that year's masters you know I kind of was limping a little bit but my leg got strong and he said by the way he said if you do your your rehab it'll make if you end up having surgery it'll make that rehab better mm-hmm. when you get out of surgery because your leg will be strong and I waited a couple of years to have the surgery. My, my kind of right foot went numb and it, it still f- felt crappy. So I ended up having the surgery for you know, quality of life. Yeah, I like yeah, to ski, I like to play sure. a lot of racket, racket sports. So I did it in 2005 and then I had to have it done again in 2007. I had a microfracture on top of another ACL. So that's kind of when I lost, I was out for 11 months and I kind of liked being away. And then you know, I had that transition from 47 to 50 where I was playing a little bit. No man's land. No, really. It was no man's. The TV opportunities were coming along. Um, I, I got snuck into an event uh, by Tommy Roy at, at the Houston Open on a Thursday, Friday when nobody knew what was going on. And I said, this was kind of fun. Hmm. Well, so from a competitive standpoint, did you feel like you were – did you feel like you were leaving anything on the table or were you okay with like, okay, now it's time to, to step back? I just always wonder what – what that mindset is like, because golf is a sport you can play for so long, and I can tell see how much you still love golf. So that's why I'm I'm just curious what that what that yeah. So I exercise is like it bugged me, and I haven't seen an athlete that played well for a long sure. time where it didn't bother them. Yeah. Where, where, where they knew it was time. I mean, look at Tom Brady right now; he's yeah. struggling at 42. You know, what team am I going to go to next when he's won six Super Bowls and played better than almost anybody that's ever played the game? Uh, I was nowhere near that, but I I. I, you'll always wonder what would have happened if I didn't tear my ACL. How long, much sure. longer would I have been competitive? I won the tournament in Hartford at uh, in 2005 as a 44 year old, maybe 45. Uh, it was after August, so it's I was in good shape. I could I could still play. Um, you know, having that ability to chip and putt was great, but it bugged me. You know mm-hmm. that I, I didn't, and I even playing some senior tour golf. I played well early out there, and then got more involved with TV, was still one of the few players out there that had a kid at home, you know, so, and I played for so long. I think we taught 708 career PGA Tour yeah, stuff. So. Like, that is so, so, so long to be away from home. That's that's kind of where I'm all getting at is I, we, were, we started talking about something about the, you know, the Champions Tour and everything and like what drives guys 
you know, in this era where people have made money playing golf, you know, keep being on the road so much. And it's just something that I think I, I kind of struggle with. And it's an interesting topic with, you know, Jim Furyk, Ernie Els, Phil Mickelson kind of graduating into this potential Champions Tour era. And I'm just curious as to how you handled that time period. And uh, and I don't know what the, the future of that's going to be. Well, Chris, be. It's, it's interesting you're saying that now because I had Eamon Lynch on my show yesterday on, on the Just the Facts radio show that I do. And, and Eamon had written the article, I don't know if you saw yeah, it, about Phil Mickelson and what, what's up for Phil and how does that affect, does it affect the, the senior tour? And I said to... I don't know if it was Greg McLaughlin eight, ten years ago, before I was out there, I said, you know, you guys ought to think about moving this senior tour age to 55 um, because as players continue to, to work out, uh, as money continues to grow on the PGA Tour, uh, guys are going to be able to be competitive past their 50s. I mean, you're seeing guys being competitive on the PGA Tour at 19 and 20 years old. What's going to say you can't keep them competitive when they're 50? Is it strain on their body? Is it the, uh, the strain on travel, uh, family, life intruding, other business opportunities? But uh, I don't think – if I'm Phil Mickelson, I hate to say this because this affects me as a player and as a friend to so many of these guys – I'd stay on the PGA Tour. Sure. You know, I'd go win your first U.S. Open. Uh, and the guys that have straddled both tours, don't, it doesn't work very well. You right. know, Davis Love, Vijay Singh. Uh, I, I admire the heck out of Bernard Langer. I, I don't know how he decided, because he was still competitive as a master champion. British Open he was competitive in. And he just took this dive into the Champions Tour and said, I'm going head first. I'm never going to play other events other than the majors. Hmm. Yeah. What uh, did you know that you wanted to go into broadcasting for a long time? I mean, when did that interest start really getting drummed up? And is it we really didn't talk much uh, about Fox or anything uh, on the last episode? And that, there's a lot I'd like to pick your brain on with that. But you know, that was something you wanted to do. Two things to answer that question. When I first got my card, the PGA Tour offered players uh, some PR help from a woman named Andrea Kirby. She used to work for ESPN, and she interviewed all of us and not many people showed up I remember Tom Byram John Cook Mark Brooks there were people that were already good on camera and good on their feet um, and it was a way she said to to how to answer questions the right way how when a viewer is watching you maybe this is going to help you um, whether it's endorsement income uh, just your Q rating whatever uh, and, and she asks questions. You know, there were, say, a half a dozen of us at this table, and you had, she had this one single camera, and she'd ask you a question like, uh, what are you expecting from your life on the PGA Tour? It was a very opened-up question. She says, I want a minute-long answer. And I rambled on and on and on about what I expected, and I went and um, and um. And she goes, congratulations, you just uh, completed the longest sentence in the history of, you know, <laughs> interviews. And I, I never stopped to talk. I never paused a beat. And then she showed us an interview of a hockey player, sound off, and she told us the body language made the most difference of anything when a player's given an interview. And you saw this guy, uh, he had his towel around his neck, helmet off, in the locker room after a game. And you could see him answering the question, you see the microphone. And she's, after this 30 seconds or so, she goes, what do you think just happened? And we're like, uh, his baby just fell out of the you know, crib and died. You know, some of his family... Uh, got disease. You know, it was the yeah. worst. Look. And she goes, "No, he just scored a goal in the triple overtime Stanley Cup to win Game Seven. And I'm like, "Wow!" So that was like a precursor to like, "Okay, I know how to answer a question better because of this, and how to 
act. And then when I was hurt in 2007, I had had my second ACL repair, a microfracture. So I was in a kind of big sling sort of thing, crutches. And Tommy Roy, who was running the Deutsche Bank, uh, televising the Deutsche Bank Championship for NBC, asked me as a player consultant to the newly renovated golf course up there with Gil Hance, would you just come and sit next to Johnny and Dan for a segment? And that tournament ran, remember, Friday to Monday. Mm-hmm. It was Labor Day finish. And this was a – he asked me to do this on a, a Sunday. So it was the third round, and you know, I thought he was going to give me a, a segment. I stayed up there for two hours. And I didn't just talk about the, the golf course renovations. They were asking about players and shots. And, uh, and he kind of said, hey, that was really awesome. I, you know, thanks for staying up. I'm like, oh, that was cool for me. It was fun to be up there. Mm-hmm. And – uh, he he gave me I, I don't know he wasn't trying to give me an opportunity to see if I was going to be good in television there but sitting next to uh, to Dan Hicks who's one of the best in the business and Johnny Miller who was the best analyst golf's had uh, it was it was kind of cool to me and then I think that's where I kind of go maybe I could do this yeah it's amazing some of the stories you hear about how small the opening window is and how like something like that like Jason Bone is doing some stuff on TV this coming year. And I don't want to take all the credit for it, but like a lot of people didn't know about like how funny he and entertaining he was until he came on our podcast last year. And now he's doing some stuff with Sky and doing stuff with CBS. Like I haven't seen stuff. him TV yet. I can't yeah, wait. he's doing. He started with Sky. He's going to be doing some stuff with CBS, I think, uh, this year as well. Hope that information. So is, it's is funny you said that because Jeff Sluman's a great friend of mine. He's just turned sixty, played on the Champions Tour very successfully, had a, made as many cuts as almost anybody. And he got asked to do an event for Tommy Roy. And you get thrown into the fire. Nobody gives you any instruction at mm-hmm. all. And my, my one story about Tommy Roy giving me instruction is really funny. But Jeff was going to be on course, which is hard to do because you get the backpack, the headset. You can't see really what the viewer is seeing. You don't have a monitor. And he got fired after the first day. And I thought Jeff Sluman would be an unbelievable guy in TV. Well, it's – and, you know, we've, we, we try to touch on this every time that we get an opportunity to talk to you guys. Like, we don't – People at home don't understand all the things that are going on before it gets turned to you. Like there's someone in your ear talking and you don't you don't have as long as you want to talk. Like you have a window. You don't really know how long that window is going to be at all. And you got to talk and hey, you got to be like insightful, entertaining. Uh, You got to have kind of the characteristics of speech that you're talking about right here and say the right thing. Like it's a lot to balance. Like I work critical of a lot of things in tv it's never like hey i want to do that job because it looks really hard it, to me. did i ever did i tell you on the first show about the first time i worked for nbc and the, the no oh. sh- the no shit story no i have not heard that. this is pretty good and uh i was going to work for nbc in 2010 so i wasn't 50 yet uh for seven events high profile events the world golf championship uh, players championship the u.s open and some of the fedex events and i thought this was a great transition for me getting ready to turn 50. So my first event's the World Golf Championship at Doral, uh, which was a newly renovated Gil Hance course. And it was one of those events where the players really didn't play much of a practice round. There's no program. So all of them showed up on Wednesday to play. You know, there's only 78 guys in the field. So I showed up Tuesday, didn't see anybody. I'm there all day Wednesday. We go to a production meeting Wednesday night. And I'm, I'm like, I'm a, in the outside tower. Now, I didn't know that the farther your tarot is away from 18, the more you are lower on the totem pole. And I was a peon. And I said to Tommy Roy afterwards, I said, okay, listen, I don't know what I'm doing. I had four monitors in my tower on 14. I had the fourth, the fifth, the 13th, and the 14th holes. What am I supposed to do? 
So he's, t- he's kind of like mad that I'm asking him. He s- takes out this scratch piece of paper. He writes down number one in pencil and writes, no shit rule. I go, what's that mean? He goes, don't ever say anything on TV that's going to make the viewer go, no shit. And I'm like, okay, so what do you mean by that? He goes, well, Frank Nobolo does this all the time. I go, what does he do? He goes, well, he'll say, Ernie Els is hitting a chip. He's chipped it. It's rolling. It stopped. The picture shows you that. Don't ever say that. Fair enough. Hmm. And then he says a, a few other things. Like, you can't say sand trap. You have to say bunker. You can't say uh, pin place, but you have to say whole location. You can't say threesome. You have to say a grouping. And he kind of goes through a couple of the USGA rules. I, uh, he goes, you'll be fine. And he passes me in the back and kicks me out. So the next day, first day, it's Golf Channel. And Nobel is actually in the tower with uh, <laughs> Kelly Tillman. And the first 10 minutes, they don't show a shot on any of my holes. So he says to me, Tommy Roy, we're coming out of break. He goes, okay, we're going to come back. You're going to say, while we were away, Ian Poulter on number nine. That was a par three over the water. So I, I, had, I had five, nine, 13, and 14. So as he's counting, I hear this one woman's voice in my headset go, uh, 30 back. And like that was a TV show or something, right? 30 back. Or, and then I heard 20 back. And then at 15, Tommy Roy starts counting down. He goes, make sure you get the name of the tournament, where we are, who's leading, and um, give us a big welcome back. And he says all this in the countdown to 15. So I'm like, okay, we're back to you. Uh, Poulter, number nine. I go, big welcome back. We're at the WGCCA championship. Uh, Ian Poulter's tee shot here on number nine. And, he, and he's going, make sure you stop talking before he hits. So he's saying all this stuff at once. So now this is on tape. And I had to say it was while we were away. So Poulter hits his five iron. The ball's in flight. And it lands like this. And I go, a beautiful shot to three feet. No shit. You can see that on TV. It's three feet. Now live, Poulter for birdie. I go, now live, Poulter for birdie. <laughs> I was so messed up. And that, that's how I started. And, and I, I, I tell this in a lot of like corporate outings because people have no idea how right. hard it is. And the funniest part was there, there are certain times when you're allowed to say that this is on tape. And there are certain times where he plays like this is live. So on the the 13th hole, which is one of the most difficult par threes on the tour, Robert Allenby was getting ready to hit his tee shot. And it was on tape. I didn't know, but I was playing as if it was live. And I hadn't seen my monitor to see that this shot had already been hit. So he goes, Allenby tee shot 13. So I go, Robert Allenby here with his five wood. And I had this one nugget on the hole. You always had to have a nugget. Uh, This is the least hit hole on tour in regulation. And the wind was blowing. You can see him aiming well to the left here, allowing for the wind. Well, he hits this shot, lands on the green, goes in the hole for a one. And I go crazy. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my gosh. So then we go to break, and the whole team's like in my headset going, oh, my God, you played it like you didn't know. That sounded so good. <laughs> and I'm like, I wouldn't want to say it. I had no idea. <laughs> that wasn't live. But I learned a lot. And, uh, you know, then Johnny Miller came in on the weekend with Dan Hicks and the, the – yeah. It, it was fun. Is it really, really different? The atmosphere, the vibe, and everything when doing a like a let's say let's say U.S. Open, men's U.S. Open for Fox. Like, is it? Because I think what the what has helped Fox be so successful. One of the factors is that you're on the air for so long, and that's hard on the broadcasters and the production at times. But you guys are given a lot more room to roam. I think is that is that fair to say? Yeah, I think it's really fair to say, and because it's only. F- one PGA Tour like event with PGA Tour players, the U.S. Open. Um, nobody expects; they're not looking for us, right? All of a sudden, we show up and they go, "Oh yeah, you guys are here again." Uh, you know, Buck's done countless Super Bowls and in, in World Series, and he, this he loves golf. I mean, people don't equate Joe Buck's 
voice with golf sometimes, but he loves to play. I mean, we, we've gone out, hit balls at night, under lights, off mats, sweating, shirts untucked, and have a ball. Um, and he, he wants to be the best golf announcer. He, he's, he's so driven, um, and he has people there that, that are helping him with statistics and stuff. Uh, it, I love being around him, and he, he's been like a guy that I can bounce some ideas off of. And like you said, Shane Bacon and I work as a team together, and if we're doing 10 or 12 hours live per day for every day, that's a lot of time for anybody to be on camera. But having Azinger be able to work – next to, to Joe has worked. I think the two-man booth's a better booth than a three-man booth, which yeah. we had for a long time. It's less complicated. And I, I got to give credit to Shane Bacon because he's out on tour more than anybody at the Fox team. He knows every player. He knows their quirks. And uh, he, I think, he first of all, he's a good-looking guy with a great voice. That always well, helps. Let's not yeah, yeah, too yeah. much here. I mean. uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm, I'm kidding. Know, he's very, very talented. And I, I love seeing like how you guys work together. But I think just in general, uh, to turn this around to start fluffing you here, I think your perspective for somebody that like appreciates golf courses as much as you do, understands architecture, has obviously all the playing experience in major championships and years on the PGA Tour, as well as like your work with instruction. I think it's a very unique you have a very unique set of skills to be able to bring to a broadcast where you are given some room to roam was me tying a bunch of points in together there. And I think it goes back to our producer, Mark Loomis. Yeah. Loomis uh, worked for ABC in the 90s. He put Faldo and Azinger together, which was, you know, if you thought about them, those two guys played against each other, Ryder Cup captain against each other. They they weren't best of friends, but they made it work. And, and Loomis is – he's kind of low-key – uh, but he's incredibly insightful and sharp. And, and uh, the Fox technology, you've seen some of the things we've done with the picture-in-picture -picture screen, this, the tracer, have more tracer cameras. Uh, at the U.S. Open at Pebble, which I thought was one of the best uh, U.S. Opens you could ever watch, not just because Gary Woodland and his great finish, but the drone cameras from the, the, from the sea over the cliff. We had, I, I think Nance even commented when he came on our set, we had 80-something 80, 80 cameras that week, and, and Nance was shaking his head. He goes, when we do this to AT&T at CBS, we have eight cameras for the entire week, and we had 80-plus for, <laughs> you know, one course. It uh, shows. It did show. <laughs> and and, and the, the 4K or the 4D, tech, yeah. it's, it's beautiful. Well, I said this to Jeff Newbarth, actually, uh, after, when he was on the podcast last year, but it was right after the U.S. Open. I've I've been to number seven. I've played number seven at Pebble Beach. I've been there multiple times. I never understood how far downhill it was until I saw the drone shot from off the cliff. And I was just like, whoa. And that's where, and I feel like you could suggest this to Loomis and it would happen. Golf, the camera angles in golf can make such a big difference on your appreciation for what players are going through. And I understand you have to have certain cameras in certain spots to cover the whole tournament, but there was a putt that was shown on NBC of Tiger on the front, the front of the green in Royal Melbourne, that it was a replay, and it was just from far away, but it was very zoomed in. You could see the depth of the green and the challenge that he was handling. I'm like, wow, some different looks in golf would help so much with viewing, even if it's it doesn't have to be every single shot. I'm not saying completely flip the golf coverage upside down, but some different looks seems like something that Fox is willing to embrace, and that's that's kind of what I'm getting at. Is like you guys you know, pop in for it's not once a year. You do other obviously you cover the U.S. Women's Open, you cover a lot of amateur golf. But it seems like you guys are willing to try pretty much anything. 
Well, I think the fact that we only do one golf event a year m- might help, you yes, know, because they're sure. willing to experiment. Uh, you know, obviously they're they're strong in football and baseball, uh, so they're not used to doing the same thing over and over again. And, and for us, the venue's at a different place every time, so you have to be unique to the venue. Uh, and, and there's really no place quite like Pebble Beach, and, and when you have some sun there. Uh, and the cliffs and that's what i think a lot of the flack that fox has caught one first year being first year was tough um but it was a brand new venue it was very different for people to appreciate and get to it was not very intimate to the viewer and same with two years later with aaron hills like it's just a lot of variables and an unfamiliar venue i mean i think the, the the u.s opens that have gone the best Shinnecock for the coverage wise was amazing. Pebble was amazing. And then going back to Wingfoot, like it's, it all has a consistent through line to it. Yeah. Wingfoot will be amazing because it's, first of all, it's Wingfoot. There's been some beautiful renovation there. Again, Hans has done some work, removed a lot of trees, changed some fairway lines. Uh, And Mark Loomis, our producer is a member there. And he, I don't know if you knew this or not, Loomis was the standard bearer in 1984 walking in the last group with Fuzzy Zeller. No way. Yes, yeah, so he was that. there when when Norman uh, made that big putt across the green that Fuzzy thought was for birdie. It was for par. Fuzzy waved the towel, and you can see the pictures. Loomis is standing right there with his little <laughs> bowl cut and that's right cool. next to Fuzzy. So That's going to make it in the broadcast yeah, this year. De- oh, yeah, we will definitely. <laughs> he got the time that. for it. Yeah. Well, what is let's let the viewers in for Wingfoot. Why is you know that people that haven't seen it since '06? What is going to look different about it? Um, you made I'm, I'm not sure how many trips you've made up there. Have you been up there recently? But what should we look for with this coming U.S. Open? Well, we did the uh, the U.S. Amateur four ball there. Uh, actually, on the other course, there's the East and the West courses there, and they put, put, they played both courses maybe in the qualifier. But we uh, first of all, I, I expect this to be a monster. I expect there to be no mercy out there. I think the course is going to be uh, what a lot of players, former players especially, like Curtis Strange who works for us at Fox, they want this to be a a slugfest. They want you to to have to hit the fairway. The rough is coming back. There's been some U.S. Opens that have not had thick rough, and it's coming back this year. You know, if par was uh, always something that was respected at a U.S. Open, I think you you would take par and run here. And and the variable there is, is it going to rain? You know, if, if it's wet... That always makes it, whether it's a 7,800-yard course or not, the wet always makes it easier for players. But I think this is going to be a course where uh, the good player is going to have to hit six, seven drivers. Uh, if you don't hit it in the fairway, you're not going to have a good chance to get it on the greens. And you know, there's been war stories about wing foot going back to Billy Casper in the third hole of the par three there where he laid up short of the green just because he didn't want to make anything anything worse than a four because if you start hitting it across, you're going right. to play ping pong. Uh, and it's been, you know, one of those every hole there looks like a U.S. Open hole where there's a lot of straight holes and you can see. I think what makes a, a course really intimidating, and really people don't talk about this a lot, is color change. So when, when you see uh, uh, the fairway cut and, and that might be a, a lighter green color and then you see the, the distinct first cut and then the, the thick, rye, dark green and you're going, oh my gosh. And, and, and it, it makes it look even narrower than it is. Well, it looks a lot different now. To, I, to be honest, I never saw Wingfoot before they took all the trees out, but I was up there two years ago or something. And it looks a lot different now with the trees out and the fairway is still narrow. So there's a ton of rough that your eyes will see when you stand up on the tee box. Yeah. Is that kind of what you're getting at there? Definitely. A little bit? Yeah. And, and what happens in, in those situations, I think players will tend to drive 
better whether the fairways if the fairways say 23 or 4 yards across which would be a typical width for a US Open fairway when there's trees uh, Medina maybe uh, old Medina um, old Oakmont I thought players would drive it better when there was trees there because it gave you a picture. Mm-hmm. And now when it's more, when there's less corridors, now you can shape it any way you want. I think it becomes harder. I think players like the hole to tell them what to do yeah. rather than have to decide what to do. I can definitely see that. Well, I, I need to, I don't know how much longer of your time we have, and I know we need to get to this story. Um, we talked about it right after we stopped recording last time. You told a great story that involved uh, the bathroom in on the first time. Oh, gosh. <laughs> you want another bathroom story? I got a lot of them. You claimed you had a really good – you told me a really good one, and my, it's maybe my life goal to have get you to tell it on the podcast. About the the, the construction the, site? Oh, no. <laughs> That's a different one. <laughs> I, uh, this is in a former life. Um, uh <laughs> The Greater, Greater Greensboro Open, the GGO. Um, my first first wife, ex-wife, uh, lived in a little town in North Carolina called Arcadia. And from Arcadia to Fairway Oaks in, in Greensboro was about a 45 to 50-minute drive. And this is way before GPS. And my uh, father-in-law at the time loved maps. And he had those spiral notebook maps that were segregated by towns you know so they were really uh dense with roads and he would show me on this map how to get through these little country roads the whole way quickest because he was kind of a sales guy repair guy and he would be on these roads all the time and he found a way to get me there like two minutes quicker with no traffic lights and bouncing between (laughs) highways and town roads and i actually started enjoying it but I, i think um I, I maybe told you in the first story that I always had an active stomach, right? You can call it whatever you want. But breakfast time, when I when I had to go somewhere in the morning, I, I made a lot of pit stops on the way. And this one particular day, I, I had white pants on. What are you laughing at? <laughs> and they were those light pants that you have to have white underwear because you're going to see the underwear, right? So um, I'm driving there, and then I got that little tug or whatever it is, and I'm like, oh, boy, I need a place to go. And, and I'm in the middle of places where there's, you know, if there were cell phones, there wouldn't have been reception. And I'm like, there's no bathroom around here, and there's no way to, like, hope you're going to run into a gas station. And um, I was zipping by this one house that had, like, a chain-link fence around it, and inside the chain-link fence was a portalette because the house was under construction or something. And it was, a, it was an older house. It wasn't like it was a new house or the new portalette. This was like one of those ones you kind of had to put a pair of pliers on your nose when you went in there. And as I pulled over my car, my car uh, to the side of the road, and it, there, there wasn't even a place to park on the side of the road because they all dropped off into where there was drainage. And I, I left it running, and I think, I got to jump over this fence, and I'm climbing up there. And you know, there's poles, and then re- really at the top of chain link fences, they're usually snug. This thing was loose, so it was really a hard fence, to, and it was tall. Yeah. So I'm jumping over it, and I thought I was pretty agile. I'm sure a lot of people laugh at that. And as I'm going over, the, the, the pole starts swinging a little, and I catch the top of the chain link, and it rips my pants from knee to crotch. It was 8, 10 inches long, and I didn't care because it, it was coming out. I was <laughs> running over to this bathroom. Uh, you know, and I didn't have time to check if there were toilet paper rolls in there, and, and I'm like, thank God there was like a little bit. 
And I was in there for a little while. Now I'm looking down. I'm going, I got to go to the golf course. I'm teeing off in an hour. I have, what am I going to do? So um, no cell phone, whatever this was. And I, I get to the course and the only thing I had was like rain gear. So I had to take my white pants off, uh, put on rain gear. And it was perfect. It was 85 degrees and sunny and everybody going, what are you doing? And then, it, so the whole world knew I, you know, I stopped to go to the bathroom, rip my pants. Uh, and oh, uh, it's story. one of many uh, stories that I have. Well, I was going to say, you, you, what was the one that came straight to your mind when, when I was bringing up the topic? Oh, uh, the Buick Open. I, I, this was an amazing story. I, I didn't know it at the time, but I had an, an allergy to kind of like wheat, gluten, uh, and dairy. And the guy that I used to stay with at the Buick Open was the tennis pro there at Warwick Hills, and he lived out at Lake Fenton. And his favorite thing was beer and pizza. And that's what we see him be every night. And he, he lived in this lake where you could water ski, beer, pizza, beer, pizza. So I have, the, obviously, early Thursday morning tea time. is a 20, 20-minute 20 ride. I'm like, oh, my God, I don't feel very good. I had to stop two times on the way uh, from his house uh, to the court, to course, and then get to the course I'm playing. I think I was playing with Andy North, and I was full-fledged uh, diarrhea. I was losing it, and I'm like, I don't even know if I'm going to get to play. I... Uh, tee off on number 10 and go sprinting back into the clubhouse, come running out to hit my second shot, get on the 11th tee, hit my tee shot, run to another poor let. Went seven times on the front nine, shot, I think I shot 29. I think I was. You did. You told, so this, you did yeah, tell yeah, this went so, on the first podcast, but uh, I, love the, I love hearing it even again. No, and I was taking some med, some Lomodal or whatever that Imodium. I was piling in there. I, I don't think I went to the bathroom for two months afterwards. <laughs> but I, I did have a doctor tell me, well, you know why you won that tournament, don't you? Because I ended up winning the tournament. No, yes, I didn't know that yes. Part. Oh, I, I shot sixty-five the first round, and um, uh, everybody was shaking their head, laughing in my group, and probably had pizza and beer the rest of the week. But um, the uh, <laughs> this one doctor was friends with with Tom Kite, Ernie Katsuyama. He said, "Well, you, you know, when you take um, Lomodal or Imodium or whatever the stronger drug, it's like a beta blocker. It just relaxes you, and that's why you won." And I got insulted by that. I go, come on, give me a little credit. I didn't have diarrhea all four days. <laughs> but uh, everybody, like at the Masters, used to laugh at me because part of my pregame prep was hit balls in the range, go to putt, run into the men's room, and come out, and then go right to the first tee. <laughs> That's I amazing. was the one that paid for the tee on the the men's room on five. Were you a better <laughs> afternoon player than morning player? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah, I still am. <laughs> I'm kind of the same way. I can see where you're, where you're coming from there. On that note, I want to talk Wait, to you. Women bit. don't listen to this podcast. No, no, no. Like, we're about four okay. percent women. Good. So. Um, what uh, Augusta? You thought you mentioned it there. You played in the Masters many, many times. You hear what? the latest Rory McIlroy, Jerry McIlroy story about the Masters with me? I'm not sure I have. So I was playing at Seminole with um, Mark Loomis, who's a member there, and Jerry McIlroy and Eamon Lynch, and you know Jerry was one of the guys that tried to get Rory to uh, talk to me about putting a couple of years ago, and J- Jerry's a good player. Uh, he's a couple years older than I am. and um, Would you say he's a great player in his own right? Yes. That's what, that's he, what broadcasters say. I, about in his own mind, too. <laughs> but no, he, he, he hates losing money. Um, but he asked me on about the 13th hole, the great par three up the hill towards the ocean, um, Brad, have you ever played in the Masters? And I think he knew immediately when he said it that he should have said, how many Masters did you play in? And then 
Eamon was busting my balls on my show yesterday because he loved the fact that he saw pain in my face for like, this guy didn't know, you know, for just that one second. Yeah. And I said, well, I did. I played in 12 of them. So it was funny. A, a month later, Brandel Shambly, Brett Quigley, uh, Eamon was out there, and a f I, who was caddying? Um, we're at the tour school, and Brandel saw the, heard the story, and they made a video. Paul Sankowski was in the video too. Hey, they, they're, they're, hey, Brad, we're out at tour school. Uh, did you ever play any Masters? <laughs> so I got the video. I just laughed, and I was in Dallas for some reason. DFW changing planes, and I got the my phone, and I'm kind of doing a Tom Brady walking, doing your video. Daniel taught me that. And um, I said, well, hey, guys, thanks for the call. Um, I did. I did play in uh, 12 Masters. I, I don't know how – I never had to go to tour school, though. <laughs> so <laughs> I sent that back at him, which was, which was pretty funny. Well, what did you see throughout the course of your career? How much that golf course changed from the – Early '90s into the 2000s, I guess. You, I think you did you play the Masters at all in the '80s? When was your first? No, one? no. Oh, I, okay. My first was '92. I played the course maybe once in okay. the '80s, but when I was watching the the Masters, and I, I loved watching Seve play there. I mean, he he you know, and watch Jack. I mean, uh, I thought you know, I, I was just starting to watch golf in the mid seventies and 75 in particular, but then watching Seve and Tom Watson kind of dominate for their few years. Uh, I loved the fact that there were no trees and there was no rough and you could, angles were important then and the, and the distance the ball went was significantly less. And uh, the way McKenzie had designed the course, there was certainly a strategy for every hole and every hole location. So every day, each hole was, uh, it was important where you were, you, you had to think backwards when, when you played there. As I singly, I understand, you know, in 97 when Tiger airmailed it over the bunkers on 18 to give himself a little pitch shot, the world changed that really, that uh, pre-Pro pre V1, uh, that we, we, the Masters Committee, has to do something to protect golf, protect the field. But you got to remember, if you think about Augusta National, uh, and even then, if the course were 7,000 or 7,100 yards, how many of those holes were severely downhill? A couple of the par fives. Think about how much downhill number two is, how much downhill 15 second shot was downhill. The, the, obviously, 10, 9, you know, where you're, you're getting an extra 50, 60 yards. So the, those four holes played 200 yards less than if they were flat. And there weren't many holes like 18 that were back up a hill. So even though the course might have presented itself on the card at 7,100, it played significantly less than that. So I, I think that if McKenzie came back and Jones came back and saw what's evolved, it looks a lot like a U.S. Open course uh, with the addition of the trees and the fairways. And even though the grass isn't long in the rough, it, it makes it a much more different shot because you're not spinning a ball out of that rough. You have to allow for roll. Yeah, and you rarely have a clear shot from the taller grass, the second cut, if you will, because it's the, the second cut's really just under a lot of the trees. Um, yeah, almost every hole. Yeah. You, you could say, yes, on you're correct on one, you're correct on two with that. If you hit it to the right on three, that tree's sneaking under you. There's a lot of holes where that that's seven for sure. Uh, and, and you see a lot of guys that when they hit it in the rough, they're kind of almost hitting left on nine, punching it around, trying to curve the ball. Yeah, so the, the rough has made a factor in, in more difficult approaches, but it also saves some balls left on 10. It won't roll all the way down the hill. It'll make pitching a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. Seeing the time frame of, uh, of your career playing through that, just how, how much it had changed, I thought you might – basically the points you were making there. And I, I, I'm transitioning that into talking about 
what we saw from Royal Melbourne at the President's Cup. I'm not sure how much of that you got to watch. But a lot. I, I, I kind of struggled with, you know, the concepts you're talking about there, about like what Tiger did in 97 and how that had to change everything. I feel like Royal Melbourne never really responded to the distance, that, you know, the di- what happened with distance. And it holds up still so, so well today. I mean, it was unbelievable watching the President's Cup at that and how much – um, you know, even a casual fan could learn within like 30 minutes of watching, like, oh, you don't need to crush it on this course. Like that for very first hole, the further you hit it, sometimes the worst spot you were into. And I'm just I'm just wondering of like how golf works and that the response to the ball going really far was to make every hole way longer. They were almost better off make, keeping it on the short little playgrounds and figuring out ways to challenge guys with the firmness of slopes and how balls rolled out and played. It's funny you say that. When, when I was in school at Furman University, which was not a great men's golf program, but it was, uh, we had a good course on campus, and one of the things our coach tried to do to, to help our players with confidence was have us play one of the qualifiers from the forward tees. Back then, we were allowed to say women's tees, but uh, we would never shoot lower from the forward tees because all of a sudden there was a strategy that we didn't, you know, it wasn't just take the head cover off and bash it down there. And if you go play some of the great courses down here, particularly in Palm Beach Everglades, uh, which is an old Seth Rainer course, maybe on 75 acres, maybe, and maybe 6,100 yards. Holy smokes, does that make you think your way around a golf course? Uh, and I agree with you 100%. So th- th- there's, today there's got to be the blend of holes that uh, make you make a decision on the tee immediately, uh, whether it's going to be a driver or not, and what how close do you want to get? And if you go back to the 1995 U.S. Amateur at Newport Country Club in Rhode Island, where the senior U.S. Open is going to be this year, uh, they don't use irrigation on their fairways, only on uh, tees and greens. And this particular year, when Tiger beat Buddy Marucci in the final, uh, Billy Harmon was the, the head professional then. And he said it was remarkable to watch some of these holes that were 320 or 30 yards, watching players from 50 yards not be able to hit a shot and keep it on the green. Mm-hmm. And Royal Melbourne has withstood the test of time, not, not only because of its architecture and, and severe greens uh, and, and around the greens with that bunkering and the, and the Australian bunkering that they have. If, if you're playing those shots from the wrong spot in the fairway because of the firmness of the greens, you struggle. And, and I think that's lost a little bit. And if you do miss fairways at Royal Melbourne, it's there's no guarantee that you're going to get a good lie. No, not, not at all. I mean, some of the rough there was very bare. I mean, it was kind of more native area than yep. it was rough. And you could hit recovery shots, but like, holy crap, you did not want to be up the left in the rough on that very first hole. I mean, just watching that first hole was just a spectacle. And what I think, and I've not, you know, I, this is, I hate even using this phrase, but what I think McKenzie and Jones were after with Augusta was like what we just saw at Royal Melbourne. And that's almost a hundred years after Augusta came out. So that's why I, a lot of people think that, you know, golf can't be like it was at Royal Melbourne. And there are, Royal Melbourne is so, so rare, but I just wonder if, you know, Augusta decided had two paths to go down and they went down this one that I, I think makes it less interesting to watch. It's still, of course, the greatest tournament in the world. There is. <laughs> the, the Masters is always my favorite tournament to play. Uh, because you had to be so creative uh, w- with your shots. I, th- I think the fact that you play, watch that on TV, the same yes. course every time, I- the same time of year, I- it's in it, and it can play hard, firm and fast, yeah. and, and that's when the scores are, are the highest or the worst. And at Royal Melbourne, 
it was such a compelling event to watch. I think Ernie Els comes away as, uh, even though he he was the losing cat. He to use the word losing, but he won a lot there. Mm-hmm. His stature improved. His team, which is harder to organize because it's international, uh, he's way down in the depth of field with, with talent on paper. But to have Sunjay M and Abraham answer, uh, these guys really answer a bell uh, to come out, come together, and, and give that star-studded team the U.S. had a real challenge. Oh, was yeah. It was great golf, and, boy, could we use some of that every week. Oh, my God, yeah. What uh, Just to kind of touch on a, a recent current event that we have talked at great length in this podcast on, but uh, and I think people are sick of hearing us talk about it, but I want to hear from a professional golfer what you thought of the way this Patrick Reed situation has played out over the last couple of months. I think it's really it's bad for the game. It's it's certainly bad for Patrick. Uh, he he's an incredible talent, it's, it's Masters champion, obviously. And what's fun to watch Patrick hit shots. You know, he 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 can cut a shot off. He can curve the ball both directions. Uh, but there's a lot of selfishness in him. And and you know, troubles fall followed him around in his career in the two colleges that he went to. Uh, Postmasters win. There were there were incidents with other players. The, the, the sadness that he he doesn't have a relationship with his family. It's remarkable to me that he kind of got away with something. That uh, every single player, the first thing you know and the first thing you learn about this this great game is you play the ball as it lies. Unless there's clear cut, uh, we're we're playing the ball up because it's rained mm-hmm. or, or conditions don't allow the ball to be played down. That's it's in. Every single player's head, you play the ball as it lies. And there can be confusion when you have waste areas versus bunkers. But we know, everyone knows, that you're not allowed to do that. Everyone. There's no exception. There's no player, including Patrick Reed, that didn't know uh, that you can't do that. Their videos resurfaced of a shot that he played similar to, similarly to that prior you know, a couple of years before. And, you know, the tour doesn't want to have controversy. They don't want to have Slugger White have to go and talk about, here's a player that willingly disobeyed a rule. So, you know, and everybody's uh, trying to avoid the C word, aren't they? The, the word, and, and I know even Jay Monahan, who's a, a close friend and a fantastic man, um, he, he's, he's warned people about saying Patrick Reed cheated. Um, there has to be intent. Uh, in order to accuse somebody and call somebody of being a cheater. Um, I don't know how you can watch that video and say he didn't know what he was doing because he didn't know it once. He did it twice. Uh, clearly created an easier path to the ball from the club. Do you buy for one second that he couldn't feel the sand under that club? Not for one second. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. Um, I don't. It'll be interesting to see how does Patrick go uh, a year because one of the spectators shouted out cheater just uh, yeah. recently at Century at the Tournament of Champions well, at Kapalua with the smallest crowd he's going to face right. all year long. Yeah, so the least hostile. Um, well, to that point, what I think you know, I, I, I've tried super hard to flip 180 degrees and see from the other side. Like, how could I not consider this cheating? And what we just said there is what makes such a difference in that. He came off the course and said that he didn't know that he touched the sand on the way back, which to me like is a, a lie. Like I don't know what you just said, how good players touch is and all these things. Like you, There's no possible way you couldn't have felt that. So that right there takes it to like an intent, to, in my mind, of, of, of saying like he could – if he came in and said, you know, I had no idea that I touched the sand, I've been like, okay, maybe – 
I, I guess I, I'm saying that wrong because he well, did No, but that. I know what you're saying because if you look at the speed at which he made those backswings, there was more speed than you would take to make that normal swing. And you see players make rehearsals when they're over the ball in the bunker. Obviously, you're not supposed to ground your club. And that wasn't a bunker, so right, that was an bunker, area yeah. that you could have grounded your club on, but you can't sweep away the sand to improve your line. It would have been like being in the woods and making backswings to get leaves and branches out of your way. We know you can't do that. You can't improve your intended line or stance um, or your swing. And clearly all those happen. Yeah, and I think by the letter of the law of the code of conduct, they have to crack down on uh, Cam Smith, who did use the C word, and the players are not allowed to say disparaging things about other players, but it is just like, feel, it just step after step feels like they're going out of their way to defend him on this, and it's a weird hill to die on. I don't, don't understand it. In your day and age, if this happened with another player, is, is there anything that play, other players are doing, saying to that player about this happening? Is he shunned in the locker room? How would you see this playing out in your... Well, definitely shunned in the locker room, and, and I think the irony of all this is, is Reed was on that plane, uh, the private plane that was going to the President's Cup from the a hero from Tiger's event where it happened, uh, and the players had to, you know, have him as a teammate. So they couldn't say whatever they wanted to say publicly. Uh, they had to live with it. Justin Thomas kind of played a little prank immediately and smiled about it. So. I think if you if you had everybody in a closed room where the word wasn't going to get out, I think the the opinions would change. Yeah, which is, yeah, I, I just the fact that the tour has taken no action on it, I think, and we've we've said this too. It's like the court of public opinion is going to be the ruler. Well, I, I, I would <laughs> I would say this because I, I know I could get in trouble too, but I, I wish more people would put the the onus on Patrick and not on Cam Smith. Oh my God! Yeah, that's like the whole point is of what we're trying to say. Like, hey. I can defend Cam Smith yeah. thinking and saying that I can't defend Patrick Reed right. and what he did. And Smith has got more, almost more of a crackdown than that. right. So what do you think appropriate punishment would have been in this situation? Well, th- this is where it becomes really a difficult situation because, you know, like you said, the the, the well, well like, like I said, the rule the rule that we know is you play the ball as it lies in this mm-hmm. game. Uh, and the other thing is what's the integrity of this game is a really important part of it is that we're, we're always ara- uh, around to um, guard the game and guard the rules uh, for others. And if I see a rule violation, I'm supposed to report that or I can get penalized. And it, it can happen, um, but it's tough to you know to want to willingly turn in an opponent uh, and you're supposed to protect the field. Yeah. So it's a tough situation. It's a sad situation that happened. Um, and if it happens a couple times, you, you know, there's got to be some action. And I would say that him willingly doing something like that is conduct unbecoming. Yeah, definitely. All right, we're going to wrap it at that. Um, then we can just – got to save some things for part three, four, five, six, and seven. I and love eight, it. Whenever, whenever you come back. So, But thank you so much for your time. These You're are the great. best, Chris. This is enjoy this. Best. Thank I you really so much. enjoy these. So thanks, Brad. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect anything.